Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to work with colleagues from different subject areas to create interdisciplinary units for students. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Steve Capone of Utah. First of all, I wanted to say thank you to all of you out there who review and subscribe or forward an episode link to a colleague. Because of you, this podcast has hit a milestone of having listeners in over 50 different countries. I certainly could not have reached listeners from Argentina to Uruguay, with Kyrgyzstan and Sweden in between, without your help. If you have the time and like this podcast or any other of the amazing podcasts out there, writing a quick review or sharing a link is the best way to help us grow. My favorite question to ask the Less Than Impossible agents I interview, and the question the least likely to be edited out due to time constraints, is about their ideal school system or curriculum. There are as many varied answers as there are guests, but a common response involves wishing for more avenues for students to explore content organically and for more opportunities to do cross-curricular collaboration. I was so happy when Steve Capone was willing to share how he and his fellow middle school teachers are able to create vibrant interdisciplinary units, as well as some of the issues that can arise along the way. We also discussed some of the other innovations he has been exploring, such as unstructured syllabi and authentic assessment. Good luck on your newest not-so-impossible lesson with special agent Steve Capone, which will begin after this quick ad break. Sunday, 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 June 27th, join us for Edupodlooza. There will be over a dozen edupodcasters. Listen for some rhythm and rhyme. That's a poetry slam, boys and girls. Roundtable discussion. Just some teachers talking about teaching and laughing and having a good time. Role-playing games. Oh, yeah, for you nerds out there, you know you're going to like that stuff. Radio drama. Dum-dum-dum-dum. And really funny people. At least really funny looking, if nothing else. 1 to 9 on June 27th, Eastern Standard Time. We'll be live streaming. There'll be links. We'll put it on the Twitter. We'll make sure that you know where it is. Follow us at Unprocast if you're not already, because that's probably going to be the easiest way to know when it's going live. June 27th. Free up your calendar now. Thank you. Awesome. So, Stevie, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. To start off, do you mind just telling us who you are and what you do? Yeah. So, my name's Steve Capone, and uh, I'm an educator, and I often don't specify um, what my subject is or what age I teach when I talk to people about my job because. I do teach across a pretty broad age range. My day job is that I'm a sixth grade humanities teacher. Last year it was, last several years, it was an integrative um, and interdisciplinary curriculum. But this this year, that interdisciplinary study stuff takes place inside the humanities. Um, and it does across subjects, but really it's just humanities this year with sixth graders. And then I'm teaching elective courses for sixth through eighth graders. And then I also teach ethics to undergraduates 
on the weekends. And I have taught from second grade reading skills all the way up through that undergraduate level uh, student. And so when I say I'm an educator, I really mean this is, this is my calling and I can teach anybody. And I won't say I can teach them anything, but I, I can teach anybody and I can t- teach pretty well across those age ranges. And I know a lot of my fellow educators have the same skill set, but sometimes we, we start talking about our, our silos it's it's interesting that you you mentioned that idea of the silos because that was what I wanted to talk to you about today was this idea of interdisciplinary teaching, um, which is something that I know happens more at the elementary and middle school and then almost completely disappears at high school. And then at least in my university experience, unless you are part of an interdisciplinary studies major. It's even not only is it siloed, it's siloed into different silos uh, within many different uh, subspecialties. So what is it that you do around interdisciplinary learning? Well, to take an example, uh, one of my units in the coming year, and it's definitely, I don't want to sound like I have it all fleshed out um, because I'm always, I'm always inventing something new. But I am taking from an interdisciplinary unit that I've done with my colleagues, uh, Mike and Cynthia, over the last few years, where we would do a space exploration unit. And my angle was kind of the history and social studies angle. And so in my classroom, the students would often be talking about the and learning about the Cold War and in that context, the space race. And we would talk about the development of space technology and how it was it was sort of a stand-in for uh, other kinds of, of uh, accomplishments uh, and the contest between communism and capitalism as we understood it at the time. And then uh, my colleague Mike, he would be uh, reading The Martian with the students, the student edition of The Martian, and they would be talking about story arc uh, while they talked about the concepts, the actual content of the book The Martian and talking about space exploration and what it means to be an explorer. And then Cynthia in science, she would really be focused in on uh, the kinds of uh, systems that would support life. I know that's a science standard, and I've had to kind of become familiar with standards across these subjects, but uh, systems on Earth that help to support life and what Mark Watney would have had to do to replicate those systems on Mars. And then that was kind of the the lead-in. And then moving forward, we would all actually use all of our class time across all three classes in building teams, and the students would have a an opportunity to build three-dimensional uh, Mars habitats based on what they had learned about Earth systems and life-supporting systems, and based on what they had learned from reading The Martian. And at that point, the history content really takes a back seat, and I become a teacher of uh, just making sure, okay, do you have this system kind of like on a checklist? Do you have that in your habitat? Do you have that in your habitat? And then I would just give them ideas and help them to think about things and coach them through building through about uh, 12 class hours. And that was that's just an example of what, what it's one interdisciplinary model. And, and what I've learned from our research as a team is that interdisciplinary instruction looks so many different ways. And we got really caught up for a few years in trying to define exactly what the way was, like the correct way to do it. And there are kind of side-by-side ways of of, uh, teaching where it's merely thematic relationships between subject areas. There's co-teaching. There's total 
um, where we would, on, on occasion, we would build an entire unit with no distinction between subjects, and we would all teach just as a um, problem-based approach to teaching and learning. And, and that is, it's, it's really the, the case that there's not a perfect way to do it. There's, you know, the community that we serve defines a lot of how we approach things and what we can do with our students. And, and then what the, the academic interests of the unit would suggest for us. And then we, we have the flexibility to change from, uh, from one approach to another. And I, and I realize lots of contexts are quite different from this. And I do think that even in a more siloed context, you can get inter- interdisciplinary learning in there. But that's going to look different, of course, as well. You're able to teach the same group of students in all three classes. Are they in a cohort model? Last year and the last couple of years, the teachers had the ability to create the groups uh, of students, the three cohorts. Or we could teach them all at once if we wished, and we could use this three-hour chunk of time on a given day in any any manner we we desired, really. And we often that meant that we split them into three equal groups, and we brought them into our individual classrooms, and we did instruction or coaching um, or project building in our classrooms, kind of separated in the physical sense. But there were other times when we all got together. We decided, um, for instance, we did a unit on economic growth and environmental costs. And we did like a cost benefit uh, kind of a unit. And we took the group up to a development up in the mountains around here in Utah. And we had them meet with some developers and the developers kind of gave their pitch about the uh, economic benefits of building a new ski resort in Utah. And uh, beforehand, I had done a lot of teaching about economics for our sixth graders. And then during that day, I mean, we're all together. We used it. We used it as a field research or field trip time, and uh, then we all came back together and we all did a reflection together. And it was so flexible um, that we can structure the groups and the time however we want. Uh, and we would switch our student groups approximately once per unit, so the kids would have a different uh, set of uh, friends and colleagues to work with. Uh, every every month or so, and we didn't have a set time for the units either, so really that varied as well. There was one point in the year where we started to have some social challenges, as middle schoolers often have, and we decided to, to um, split the groups into um, boys group, uh, girls group, and another boys group because we just had so many boys last year. And we just kind of would observe, we'd talk to our school counselor and observe like, oh, how's this dynamic working? How's that dynamic working? And it allowed us to attend to the social emotional development of the students while we were dealing with the academic stuff as well. So yeah, it's, it's really variable, I guess, is the answer. And, and we have the, the power at our school. And I, and I know that this is unique. I'm not um, blind to that privilege, but we, we can design these groups however, however we want. Yeah, I I taught in a district where some uh, schools had humanities. It was always disappointing when you saw a teacher do a day of English, a day of social studies, a day of English, a day of social studies, when there was this amazing opportunity. And I and I realized that for some, maybe they felt more comfortable in one area or the other. Or, but I I love that idea of just going thematically and finding all the spaces to fit everything. Yeah, and um. I, that really touches on, there, there's a thing that we do in, uh, ed, in our educational system that really grinds my gears, and that is 
assuming that every kid needs exactly the same amount of minutes with every subject area, you know, it's just not the case that we, I mean, we know, and I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir. We don't learn identically. Every person doesn't learn like every other person. And, and there might be one student of any age and any ability, really one student who needs more support when we talk about economics and, doesn't really need as much support when it comes to free reading time and an ability to identify the main character in a story, but really needs more coaching on that economic stuff. And I, I really want to see us get to a place with education where we have personalized coaching with skills at the forefront, thinking critical thinking skills. And um, I just hate the idea that we, we say, well, you must have this number of hours per week in this course and that number of hours per week in that course. And I did an interview with um, uh, the principal and some teachers at the school near me called Edmonds Heights, and they're a homeschool partnership. Kids um, can come in and like elect to take some courses, or they can study at home, or they can do their, you know, there's all sorts of different models. But one of the things that like really blew my mind was getting away from the idea of minutes of butts and seats. And it had been so ingrained in me to think that way that the moment that that got pulled away and it's like, well, why do we, we've got this arbitrary number and we're making assumptions that that is apparently what kids need, you know, but of course kids get sick and, you know, you get sick as a teacher and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, why, why am I so tied to this idea? There's this many classes and I do this many units and it, it was a lot harder to to give up this idea that that was really important than I thought it would be yeah and and I I, I want to yes and you um the, <laughs> a thing that I tried uh last year with my uh my undergrad uh ethics students was that I offered uh, this and it was a small class so it made it easy I had 16 I think and I offered them two tracks and track one was more traditional where I, and this was an in-person class that wound up online for half of the, half of the semester. But I offered them track one, wherein students would get a more traditional layout of assignments. You do this many of this kind of assignment, that many of that kind of assignment. Here's a reading schedule. It was really like laid out for them. And I said, look, I'm very flexible. You guys can pick your own deadlines for these, but if you want deadlines, here they are. I absolutely have to have this group of assignments, but you know, I gave them some drop dead deadlines so that I would have time to give them useful feedback. But otherwise, it was up to them. And then I said, okay, so that's track one. If you want, um, if you want to feel like you know what's coming, that's track one. Well, track two is here are the five skills that we're building and assessing, and the content areas that we're building and assessing in uh, in this semester. Uh, we're going to use our class meeting time as conference time for individual students. And I will give you some options of assignments that you can choose to do. But your job this semester is to prove to me mastery and to prove to me improvement over the course of the semester. And each week we had conversations where we would discuss whatever the students wanted to discuss from a list of ethics topics. And I made sure that I hit kind of the areas that I needed to hit. But I didn't know going into a week, like, are we talking about feminism uh, next week or are we doing like some kind of Marxist revolution thing? And each at the end of every class period, we would just talk about, so what are you guys into for next week? Do you want to build on this 
uh, John Stuart Mill utilitarianism thing. We could do that Ursula K. Le Guin piece, or do you want to totally switch gears and we can do racism in America? And it sounds like it sounds like a lot, but it it really took pressure off of me, and I didn't have to pick what were the essential readings going into a semester of sixteen weeks with these students who they had so many varied backgrounds. I wanted to be able to hit their hit their strengths. Um, I had a a an, uh, a guy an an immigrant, and he had been a a medical doctor in his country in South America. And then he came to the United States and he was no longer qualified to be a medical doctor under our system for whatever reason, reciprocity, et cetera. And he was back to school and his amount, his vast experience and his point of view was so important that I felt like, look, if I had made this like list of readings at the beginning and I mean, I wouldn't have been able to respond on my feet as I was to the pandemic. I mean, we spent two weeks with him leading some of our conversations in part based on his experience where we were talking about ethical choices that medical doctors have to make in extreme circumstances. And what does medical resource scarcity mean for medical doctors and how do we make those choices? And it was awesome. And so I'm, I've, I'm applying that in my sixth grade classes as well, where I'm kind of saying like, look, here are the broad categories. I have these units kind of planned out, but inside that unit, I want to give the students um, some choice about the actual content that they're studying this year. And, and it's not all planned out yet. This is what I've been spending all of my hours really working on is that I want to give students content options as well as assignment options. So if I have three different kinds of assignments, all of which could help me to assess a specific skill that I like chronological thinking, uh, then I want the students to be able to choose between the assignments. And it's kind of like asking uh, like a five-year-old, do you want to wear this shirt or that shirt? It's still within bounds. And I still am setting the parameters, but they get to feel like, and it's real, they do have a choice. It's, it's choice architecture. I want to do the same thing with my content uh, as well as those assignments where I might say to a student, okay, so we're going to do some, we have to do ancient history. We're going to talk a little bit about ancient history. Do you want to learn about ancient China, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, like I have some opportunities for you to learn something about each of those things you get to pick. And then different kids might choose different things. And if I have some of the stuff set up in advance, it doesn't really matter what they choose. And I don't have to be an expert in everything. I can present some, some of the resources that I've gathered, and then we can literally learn some of this stuff together. And it's going to make me a better teacher. And, and then I'll know more about it next year when a kid wants to do a different ancient culture that I haven't taught about before. Somebody wants to learn about Assyria. I don't have that much to tell them right now. But if once a student tells me I really want to learn about Assyria, I, you can darn well be assured that next year I'll know more about Assyria than I did this year. This might be my social studies bias showing um, but I feel like in social studies, you can make a connection to almost anything, especially when it comes to science. But I know that there's some things in like English, like teaching parts of speech that are not going to fit into a integrated unit. Um, is that just kind of done on the side? Like how, how do those kinds of things work? That's a great question. We have given ourselves permission not to be in a fully integrated model at all times. And so sometimes it's like, I mean, I'm trying to work in my social studies curriculum wherever, in whatever context and with whatever topic we're doing. Uh, but we have given ourselves permission to take 
you know, 20 or 30% of the class time throughout the year and really just nail down on some of our subject specific areas. In general, um, we haven't had trouble uh, in connecting the the subjects. And if we do, we realize, oh, this is actually the wrong topic for us to tackle. We need to find something a little bit different where the connections are natural and where they feel compelling and not manufactured. And I think as teachers, we all we all can recognize what it feels like when we're giving a student an assignment and we realize, actually, I don't know why I gave that assignment. I'm doing it just to do it or because I have to check this box. And we try to stay away from when we get that vibe, we move on to something else. And there is a longer conversation here about how we design our units and how we, we did this um, 51 ideas thing where to get our unit ideas, we would stand around a table, we would put sticky notes down, we would have like silent sticky note time the three of us on my team, and we would just write down as many curricular ideas as we could, including skills and including uh, content, and then we would brainstorm together and try to narrow down what were really the best ideas that had genuine connections between the subjects and would allow us to tackle those thinking skill areas that we needed to or wanted to cover in our own classroom. So we let ourselves off the hook in terms of content demands, and we also just gave ourselves permission not to teach every skill, every, you know, can't teach every skill, every unit. So allowing ourselves to figure out, okay, well, we'll start with the compelling content. Giving ourselves permission not to be perfect is a big part of the answer to that question, but it does lead to a much longer conversation about planning these interdisciplinary units. And then every teacher's favorite part of their job, assessment, do you just each of you look at a different part of the project and assess your content area? Well, yeah, so we've done that a number of different ways. We've had independent assessments classroom by classroom or teacher by teacher. We have had um, joint assessments uh, wherein each teacher assesses a different group of uh, target areas or rubric areas. And then we've also had like joint skills where all three of us were assessing in the students that we had in our classroom on a project that was going on in all three rooms where we were just assessing, say, like collaborative skills that we had identified and been um, working with the kids on and and so assessing when they put that to the test. Like the kind of assessment I do really is driven by, okay, so what am I trying to assess here? And the assessment needs to be just in the... um guidance we get about backwards design models like understanding by design or like the inquiry design model in social studies, which I love. Uh, we want to make sure that the assessment that we give has some genuine application in the real world and doesn't feel just like a checklist um, for the kids like, oh, well, we have, to, we have to make sure they understand what chronology means. So we'll, we'll make them fill out this chart or something. Um, we do want it to be a genuine experience, and I really try hard to give myself freedom. Again, it's all about freedom not to be perfect and to work iteratively, but give myself the freedom to uh, design my assessments in whatever way seems to fit. And I design with my team usually, like, what, what is your assessment going to look like? What's yours going to look like? Is this a thing where we should be assessing together? And if so, how do we split that up in this case? What has been your students' reactions to the interdisciplinary work that 
you do with them? Has it been positive, negative? Have they, you know, expressed a preference for things being separated out or do they see the value? So the first year we did it, I, I think that students were confused. Like, well, wait, why, why don't we have separate history and English and science? Like, why is all this stuff mixed together? And and eventually they came to appreciate it. But we, quite frankly, weren't very, like, we weren't very adept at rolling it out. Like, we didn't have the language to describe it at first. And I think that in the classroom, we did a great job. But there's, there's like, there's marketing to helping parents to understand what what this is for and how it works. And we didn't do it perfectly the first year. And I, I don't say that to be critical because I think in I think anybody would have had the same experience, honestly. But but um, as the years have gone on, our students have, whether we're just communicating it better or they're getting more comfortable as they kind of move into this and expect it year to year rather than just, bam, it's all new this year. Uh, but the students definitely appreciate the connections between the subjects. I used to hear things from students like, well, why am I learning? Like, why am I learning this? But once we have these, at at minimum, thematic connections, there's never a question about like why something is relevant. And that seems really important. And I think the kids are onto it, especially when they know like, hey, it's because we're doing integrative studies that after we finish reading The Martian, we get to build habitats just like Mark, Mark Watney's, but like we're going to do a model and this is what a model is. And I learned about modeling and science and these are my methods and this is how I'm doing scaling, which I learned in math. And they can draw connections between these things. And I, it like makes my heart sing to, <laughs> makes my heart sing to hear the kids talk about the connections that we intend and then they have received. What would you say would be the biggest struggle in trying to have an interdisciplinary classroom or space or relationship with other teachers? <sighs> so the heavy sigh, um, the heavy sigh indicates that but the first thing I, I think of is how much growth and, and I'm, I put it this way because it has been like, it's in, in real terms, it's a constant struggle. I really kind of came up educationally, academically, not in a, in a siloed fashion, because like, I mean, I, I have like humanities degrees and stuff and philosophy is really like, t- that's my background. That's really tied to a lot of different subjects. We deal, like I took an advanced biology class when I was a graduate student in philosophy because I needed to understand phylogenetic inference. But I still, when I got into the middle school arena, wasn't sure how to interact with my colleagues. Like, these people are experts in their thing, whatever their thing is. And so sometimes I want to defer to them. At other times, I want to explain to them why my point of view is right. I mean, it is like a marriage. And now I've been married a few years now, and I can say that I have done so much um, work on my marriage through my work at work. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I like, I love my colleagues, but we've had to work hard at how do we be open? How do we communicate? Um, Can we, can we tell the other person like, Hey, I do, do I know how to come to a, we would have these collaborative sessions and we had four hours a week scheduled to, to team plan our units, but we'd come to these collaborative sessions and there would be something, invariably, there's something in my life outside of that meeting that is impacting 
what I'm bringing, like the, the energy that I'm bringing to that meeting. And sometimes that thing has to be spoken aloud before I can proceed, before anybody can proceed. The trouble is when we started with this model and when I started with my current position, most of us had no idea how to handle that. There's this distinction I've heard between task and maintenance in a relationship and uh, or in a job in a, at a job place. Uh, and we were, and I am really so automatically tuned into the task at hand. Okay, what's our list? How do we get things done? How do we move forward? We don't have very much time. Let's go, let's go, let's go. That we were completely skipping maintaining our sanity and maintaining our relationships with the other people we were working with. And so the biggest challenge has been learning to focus on maintenance before task and making sure everybody is in the right headspace. I mean, if, if my, uh, I'm just as an example, if, if, uh, if I have a child at home who's like really sick and I'm very worried or distracted somehow, then the way I respond to you in a meeting when you pitch an idea is going to be colored by that. And I don't know it unless I'm really practicing, uh, expressing that other stuff that's going on. I might give you a funny look or say the wrong thing that I really doesn't communicate how I feel about your idea at all, but instead communicates, I am really having a hard day. And, uh, it's, I, I feel like in education, just as in other fields, it's really frowned upon. And, and I, I don't mean my school, but I just mean professionally, we often will frown upon the idea that our private personal lives impact how we deal with things at work. And the fact that we don't want to admit that makes it really hard to work through the fact that it is 100% necessary that that be a part of how I prepare for my meetings with my team. And that my team has a procedure at the beginning of every meeting. Let's do a check-in. How's everybody doing? What kind of energy are you bringing today? Is there anything we can do to support you right now? Or do you just need to, to just talk for a minute? Or do you need us to just move forward? A teacher is listening to this podcast and he, she, or they is thinking, wow, this model sounds amazing. It fits with my philosophy of teaching. I'd love to begin doing integrated work. What do you think their first steps should be to, to making this happen? So I love your question and I don't like your question. And I'm, and I, and I don't mean that in a negative critical way, but I love it because I feel like every one of us, every teacher in any context can do some amount of integration across fields. I mean, if I'm a social studies teacher in a uh, public school district in Utah, I have state standards of what content I'm expected to teach the kids about. Inside that, I can present information about, I, I can bring in literary sources and I can bring in uh, movies or videos and not like kind of the old school way of, well, today we're going to watch a movie together, kids. And then there are right ways of doing that. But I can bring in um, scientific stuff. I can talk about how, if I'm supposed to teach about the American Revolution, I can talk about how, I can teach by analogy and talk a little bit about the scientific revolution, or I could talk about other revolutions. I can just bring in other resources. And if I'm not an expert in those areas, which I'm assuming none of us really are, we can talk to those other teachers and say, hey, let's just like sit down. Let me like buy you a cup of coffee or like socially distance. We can sit near each other, but not next to each other. And let's just talk about revolutions. Like in your, in your area, in your silo, in your traditional silo, like 
what do revolutions look like in your silo? And like, I might just be taking notes. They're like, oh, cool. Like there's a connection here with like the revolution, um, with like the beat generation of poets. And maybe I can like give my social studies students like a Langston Hughes poem or something. And I mean, there, there, there are ways to make connections that are totally genuine and really will keep the kids uh, moving and, and giving them options wherever possible is great. But I think just like as a teacher thinking less like, okay, I must be a content expert first. Like we can be learners first and then bring the, bring our students along for that journey and like letting them know, look, I don't know all this stuff, but that's cool. We're going to work together. We're going to learn as much as we can together. And like, I'm your guide. Like I'm here to help you figure out how to be a lifelong learner. Like if, if they leave my class and they don't remember anything about the Secessio plebis um, from ancient Rome, like I don't care. I mean, most people don't care about Rome. They don't know anything about Rome and that's okay. But if they leave my room and they can't think chronologically or understand like a cause and effect relationship, then I screwed up. And I think any teacher can relate to that. Even if we have content areas we're supposed to cover and I realize different States have different expectations and all of that, but we can, we can get creative. And I think if we give ourselves permission not to hit literally everything and to some extent practicality requires that we do this anyways, because I think I saw a study that said if you tried to teach the social studies curriculum as written by a particular state that was the example in the study, it would take you actually more like 15 years instead of one year to do this huge thing. (laughs) So we already, by necessity, can't cover everything. And that's okay. Um, We should give ourselves permission to explore the space. Okay. So for my favorite and last question, you have unlimited funds unlimited time, unlimited control. What is your ideal integrated model? It really is a, an open classroom environment where as a school, we, we pick this, we do something like what my school has already done in, in selecting the skills that we think are in, I'm talking about critical thinking again and executive functioning and all that stuff, pick the skills that are important. And then I, I want to develop and I hope I'm not giving away a million dollar idea, but I don't have the million dollars to develop this million dollar idea. Uh, and so I want an app and I want the app to track student progress through skill development toward mastery goals. Oh. I want to eliminate the grade levels. I think this like sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade stuff is not very helpful in the same way that I think that set number of hours in a butts and chairs uh, is not very helpful. And then I want the students to have personal learning coaches and they meet with that coach every day or four days a week or something. And they, they kind of figure out, okay, here's where I am on this skill. Here's where I am on that skill. I need to go see teacher X at this time. Maybe we'll go to teacher Y later on today. And then I have that project that I've been developing across like this independent study across these three subjects. So I'll check in with my advisor about that topic or about that independent study program or plan. And then it's the teacher's jobs in that case to guide students through skill development, to meet students where they are, and to help them uh, move forward in ways that are inspiring to those students. And I really think that personalization is the way to do this. And And I also truly and honestly don't think we're far from that, even if it feels really far away. I feel like we're maybe three or four steps away from that. 
How can people get a hold of you or find out what you're doing or see examples? I know you blog. What are ways to follow along on your learning journey? Yeah, so um, the most immediate way to make contact with me is that I am on Twitter a little bit too much at Capone Teaches, C-A-P-O-N-E-T-A. Well, we know teaches. <laughs> and so I actually have a website with the same address, Capone Teaches, www.caponeteaches.com. And I, I am not as regular with my website as I could be or should be or what have you. So I'm always happy to talk to people. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for talking to me and, and sharing your experience. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so honored to have been asked. Really, I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative. And I hope that something I said will help somebody. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at LessonImpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. 